Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Blair, and this is the Prison Yoga Project podcast. We are honored and really excited today to have our guest speak to us on the amazing emotional integrity and resilience of nonviolent communication and working with people that are impacted by incarceration, Sunil Joseph. I'll read his bio, and then Sunil is going to lead us in a centering opportunity. Sunil Joseph is a certified GRIP facilitator actively involved in teaching the restorative justice-based healing and accountability program within California's prison system. Sunil is engaged in developing remote learning courses for incarcerated individuals through the Buddhist prison ministry. His journey has led him to instruct nonviolent communication, NVC, to diverse groups, including incarcerated people at San Quentin Prison. In 2021, Sunil became a certified mindfulness meditation teacher after completing the two-year program led by Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock. Additionally, he holds the honor of graduating from Bay's NVC one-year NVC leadership program in 2008. Sunil is actively dedicated to his own psycho-spiritual development as a student of the Wurdwan School for over 10 years. He deeply appreciates the wisdom shared by remarkable teachers and teachings, which have enriched him his life in countless ways. Sunil wholeheartedly embraces opportunities to support others on their personal journey towards fulfillment and well-being. Thank you, Sunil. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Blair. It's great to be here. And did I say that right? How do you say the school? Ridwan? Ridwan. Ridwan. Okay, thank you. Will you lead us in a centering opportunity? I'd be happy to. So today is garbage day here. So you may hear some truck sounds arise as part of the meditation. So you can meditate on that too. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, why don't we do it? So it'll be about three to five minutes and I'll track the time. So if you feel comfortable... Closing your eyes or finding a soft spot somewhere in front of you that's not moving to gaze at. And there's a truck right here celebrating the start of this meditation. So let's all take a big breath with that. Feeling our body expand and letting the air go completely. And then another big inhale. Feeling your body expand and letting the air go completely. And then doing one more big breath, but doing it in as comfortable a way as you can. So maybe it's slowing down the inhale and the exhale. Maybe it's lengthening it. Maybe it's not so big, but finding a breath that's really comfortable and nourishing. Let's do a few more of these. Just being curious, what would be nourishing? What kind of breathing? And as you're doing this, also sense 
your body sitting here, arriving. Noticing any sensations you feel in your hands. So any warmth or coolness. Maybe you could feel the contact with clothing through your hands. Listening for sensations through your hands. And then sensing under you, what does the seat under you feel like? Is it soft? Is it hard? Firm? Noticing the pressure your body puts on your seat. And see if you can breathe into that contact. Also feeling through the soles of your feet. What do you notice? Again, listening to the soles of your feet. Sensing your toes. Noticing any tingling, warmth, coolness, contact with clothing, the floor. And then coming back to your whole body sitting here, breathing. You may feel your pulse, your heart beating somewhere in your body. And lastly, checking with your heart. How is your heart right now? And if there's any part of your heart that could use a little warmth or love or kindness or gentleness, just breathing that in. Imagine breathing in kindness or warmth or gentleness or love, friendship, compassion, tenderness. Imagine breathing that into your heart. And it feels all right. Imagine sending that out as on your out-breath to everyone, all beings who could use it right now. And then I'm going to ring the bell to gradually bring us out of this meditation. So listening to the sound of the bell as it changes over time.
as you're ready, opening eyes and letting yourself orient to your own space, naming three objects you can see around you. And coming back to the screen. Thank you so much. I could feel myself immediately go into embodied observation. I had this existential feeling of, oh my God, I'm a human. And I really got to sit with that. And uh, that was really special. Thank you. Can I ask you what it feels? I mean, I love what you said about being an embodied human. It, it sounds really beautiful and rich and whole. And I'm curious, could you say more? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd love to share more. I sat, sometimes I'll sit with my eyes open. If I think it makes me a little bit more present. I don't go deeper into thought. And so I just got to observe my hands. And hands are this uniquely human expression as well. And you brought our awareness and our attention to our hands. And I could feel a coolness of energy in my hands. But then I also felt the warmth of my hands on top of each other. Mm. And I imagined that my hands were full of love. That's so beautiful. I get tingles when I hear you say that. It's just so beautiful. Thank you for leading us there. Thank you for bringing us. And then the heart piece I'll share too. This made me laugh when you brought us to our heart. And if our heart needed anything, it was almost like a, a pit crew started like buffing my heart, you know, like like blowing on it and, and shining it a little bit. And that was that was that made me laugh. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you have a pit crew for your heart. I, I, <laughs> I should go and hire a pit crew for my heart. <laughs> Call them in. You're like, all right, come on. Love it. <laughs> Thank you. That was you. Uh, really meaningful. Mm -hmm. What's your first memory of mindfulness? Um, I went, I was living in Sacramento like in the early 2000s, maybe 2004 and um, actually, you know, what happened was I was on an online date back then. I was telling myself I wouldn't share these embarrassing stories because I want to share this webinar recording with my family. But here we go. Hey, family. <laughs> um, I was on an online date and she wanted to go to a uh, meditation. And I was like, sure, I, I wanted to act like I'm cool, right? And so we went to this Buddhist Sangha, Sacramento Buddhist Meditation Group in Sacramento and they do a sun, I think it was a Sunday night sit and they sit for 40 minutes and I'd never sat before. And she was like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. And I toughed it out and I was just sitting there going, I want to be cool. I'm, I'm being cool here. And it was... <laughs> so I sat there for 40 minutes, not knowing what to do. And even before we started, they asked like, is there anyone here who needs any meditation instructions has never done this? And you know, my date was like looking at me. I was like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not. So, you know, and this connects again to the male role belief system about I got to act like I'm cool. I, I know it all and all that stuff. So anyway, that was a start. And then later on, you know, uh, I never met this person again after that. But I circled back to this meditation center and I was like, that's a cool thing. I want to go check them out. So I went back there 
And then I found out about, then I started attending. Then I found out about a meditation course, which I went to. Then I found out about Spirit Rock, did a loving kindness retreat there. And, you know, I fell into the rabbit hole. (laughs) I love that. 40 minutes is a really long time for your first sit. (laughs) (laughs) To pretend, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I started pretending and, you know, they say fake it to make it. I was, yeah. <laughs> I love that. How had, how did that experience or that path lead you to nonviolent communication or lead you to grip? How did it lead you to facilitating inside prisons? Um, yeah, as I was doing those retreats and like, um, I found um, Marshall Rosenberg's book the introduction to NVC. And as I was doing these groups and meditations, I started to experience childhood pain, Mm. pain that I'd had. I thought I was a happy person going along my life doing, you know, successful. I come from India as an immigrant, studied, got into a tech job. And I was like doing everything I was supposed to be doing. Right. But as I started doing these practices, I started realizing I was actually in pain. You know, so then I had to start working with that. And it's, it was around that time I found Marshall's book, who wrote Normal Communication, created it. And as I read his book, I felt this energy in it that touched me. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but there's something special about this practice for me because I felt something, you know. Um, it wasn't like I got, I mean, there were lots of great ideas and stuff, but it, I felt something. And I was like, okay, what is this? I need to pursue this. So I started, you know, that, that was the time when I started doing yoga and I was, I was going to these groups and I was like, okay, I found a practice group in Sacramento in 2004 and started doing that work. Um, and then I went to more trainings in NVC. I just kept at it. I was like, and it really helped me because NVC really for me is about finding our humanity. A lot of people, it's often taken to be a communication process. Oh, I want to resolve conflict with other people. For me, um, the ground of NVC really is in the inner landscape of how am I relating to this stuff that's going on, you know? And I think it's really tragic that we're not given these tools to make sense of our emotions, how to be human, just how to be human, you know, which then ends up in someone like me judging myself, oh, I'm too this, I'm not enough that, I'm this and that, and why am I feeling this way? And what NVC gave me was a way to like actually start connecting with my own feelings and be like, oh, this is what I'm feeling. And this is why I'm feeling this way. And that was a huge peacemaking operation. (laughs) You know, it's like peacekeeping started to have resolution of things. And um, so, yeah, um, I'm going to pause here. I'm not sure where to go next. Well, just reflecting, I'm hearing that a lot of people view nonviolent communication as a external dialogue, but I'm hearing that it really created a foundation of internal dialogue for you, which then of course then informs a, a, a dyad. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's one of the great, another tragedy is that people, the roots of this work of NVC really are that inner connection, which is called self-connection. How connected am I with my own feelings and my needs, right? And I showed you, you know, like, so it starts there. And then what happens is when 
we take this approach and and I can understand somebody who's in pain and they're like, oh my God, I can I want to resolve this painful conflict I have. So not to put them down. But when we take that and go, we learn this approach and then try to use it externally without the roots being of the tree being good, of the tree needs good roots in order to really branch out, to go out mm-hmm. and do this thing interpersonally then the quality of that interpersonal dialogue really suffers. And then it can actually backfire because they go, wait a minute, you're doing some technique on me. You know, so, but if you really, if you can do the work, right, to root it in the heart, then what gets conveyed is exactly what you're saying, which is how your heart is in relation to this person. And that's what allows the connection to happen in the way that NVC is offering. So that's been my experience, you know, and so I really like to tell people I'm more interested in the inner NVC because I trust that as you work on the roots, the tree will grow out, Mm. will change your relationships. But if you focus on this, I don't believe that's the the best way in it. It hasn't worked for me. And what I teach is more the the root work. And yeah, I I love the visualization of nourishing the the roots. Will you talk to us a little bit more about these core tenets of NVC, nonviolent communication, kind of the landscape? Sure. So uh, some of the fundamental assumptions in NVC are that um, we all share the same human needs, right? All human beings share the same human needs. And the um, our needs are at the level of like respect, you know, consideration, community, love, friendship. So there, um, it's not things like going to a movie or a, a smartphone or all these things. Those are considered strategies to meet needs. Mm. Okay. So like even being here right now, we we are not conscious of what needs we are trying to meet. But what this approach says is that every action, every human action is to meet some need, whether we are conscious of it or no. So for instance, right now, my being here is to meet some needs of mine. Your being here is to meet some needs of yours. The people who are in attendance, the 23 folks we have, they are here for, to meet some needs of theirs, right? We are not conscious. So, for instance, if, you know, like, I imagine a number of people who are here are here for community. And I welcome people to put in the chat if it's true or no. I'm, so, what I'm doing is this NVC process call, connect, you know, I'm connect, trying to connect with the needs of others right now, rather than the root work. So I imagine many people are here because they want community or they want connection or they want a sense of belonging or meaning and purpose, you know, because this community is a rich place for so much meaning and purpose here. And being with others who share that sense of that longing to to serve, I imagine. Um, yeah, so, okay, you were asking me, I'm coming back to the thread, which was... So every action is to meet some need, even if you're not conscious of it. Our feelings are really arising from our own needs. So there's this idea of taking responsibility for our feelings by really, you know, so if I'm feeling um, hurt, it's because some need of mine was not met. And so I, I start getting curious. One of the things in the world we live in that we are taught consciously, unconsciously is that you're respon- somebody else is responsible for my feelings. 
you know, so all the songs are about how somebody makes me happy. I love them, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you do the song and dance thing. And then, you know, and then the other side is all the other songs about, you know, how hurt and upset I'm with you because it's your fault I'm feeling this way. Other people do contribute to how we feel. They stimulate what we feel. But when we can really connect it with our own needs, you know, and I don't want to... Um, negate the experience of someone who feels like somebody else is responsible for their feelings. I'm just naming the assumptions and the work we're doing in this approach. So not to make anybody else wrong. I, I still have blame and um, judgment about other people. and But the work for me is how do I take that blame and judgment and transform it into seeing what do I need here? Mm. You know? and, and that is part of the process of uh, shifting into compassion and the nonviolence. And nonviolent communication, nonviolence is not the absence of violence, it's presence of compassion. And so, yeah, right? And so that's really important. It's not just about not being violent, but it's like, and the way we get to that compassion, you know, the quality of compassion. So Marshall said that we, we are inherently, innately compassionate beings and we love to contribute to each other. Um, and I, a simple example is, you know, I think we've all seen kids out there who, you know, see a child sees another child crying and just goes and gives their toy to the other child. It was not because anyone taught the kid to do that, right? They just do it. We know this place in ourselves, this place of innocence and this place of like, yeah, it's, it's, that's how we would not survive without that. It's so deep in our biology and our evolution. Um, and so how do we find a way back in there? Um, I'm trying to think of other, yeah, let me pause there and see what's. I, I love, you know, our, our biology is rooted in connection and our connection is rooted in safety and survival. And so it's this innate piece that we're able to connect back to. It's not necessarily something that we need to find or put in us. It's already in us. That's right. Yeah. And finding our way back, just kind of like when we did the meditation, you said, I felt like an embodied human being. More of us comes online at that level because in our regular world, we're doing, we're, you know, Dan Siegel, he talks about, you know, I'm not a big expert on his work, but the little I've heard, he talks about the left brain and the right brain. And the left brain is about lists and logics and words and all these linear stuff. And the right brain is about emotion, about holism, and it's and some other things. So when we do these practices, I feel like we're shifting to the right brain, to the feeling, sensing, being. We need both. But the world we live in has an emphasis, overemphasis on the doing and the not to make it bad, it's needed. We need both in balance. But there's so much of this that we lose. I'm trying to, I'm, I can't oversimpl I'm oversimplifying it, but I feel like there's these places where we can drop into and in the work we do with ourselves and with others, that's where the healing can happen when we shift out of the, or we, sh I don't know, we shift more into what we are and not just stay in one small part of who we are. The, the balance. Yeah. Speaking to. Yeah. And this, these tenants and the emotional availability is so important to how we hold space when we go inside. You know what? Yeah. 
at Prison Yoga Project, we talk so much about the foundation of our work is relationships. And that's where healings take place is in relationship. And you and I were speaking before is that, you know, maybe you're going in and you're facilitating a yoga and mindfulness class, and there's not a lot of time for dialogue. But you as the vessel, as the facilitator, as the space holder, there's so much being communicated non-verbally. Exactly. I would love to hear about some of your experiences going inside and how this work, being rooted in this work, supports you. Yeah, there's a that's a beautiful quote I want to read from Carl Rogers, who is like my guiding saint. Um, he says, before every session, I take a moment to remember my humanity. There is no experience that this person has that I cannot share with them. No fear that I cannot understand. No suffering that I cannot care about. Because I too am human. No matter how deep their wound, they do not need to be ashamed in front of me. I too am vulnerable and because of this, I am enough. Whatever their story, they no longer need to be alone with it. This is what will allow the healing to begin. You know, so for me, it's like, how do I walk into and find those places, show up as a human being with, with my own humanity, you know, because I believe the medicine is in, in when we make human contact and dropping in with each other, then the, um, the healing begins, like he says, then becomes a flowing process, you know, and again, like the grounding we did for about five, six minutes, we are gradually dropping in with each other and we're all transmitting and receiving all the time, right? Like right now we are, and we're affecting each other's state all the time. And, um, and when we are holding space, we have such a, we are, we become like the transmitters of the, in the room. And our energy and our state is everyone's and people implicitly are receiving. When mm -hmm. you have somebody who's leading a meditation or giving a talk like I am, I'm transmitting my state, you know, um, and people are in a receptive place. So when we're in a classroom setting, I believe the inner work we do and where we're coming from in ourselves, right, um, is is a big part of what we are offering, not just the words. Totally there. I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, I think you're speaking to, you're just reiterating the importance of our own work when we come into these spaces. Yeah. Exactly. And being rooted in our own work informs the relationships that we build inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And your question was, how has it shown up in my work inside? So for me, this quote I read is what informs everything I do. So like even starting this call, if I had not, part of me was like, oh, um, I don't think I want to talk about these experiences. And I was like, if I don't, then there's something, the sharing of my own vulnerability is a big piece of helping us all drop into our humanness, I feel. And so when I go inside and I'm working, I share with my students. So I do the grip work and often we have a group of like 30 incarcerated students or 35. We have inside facilitators and outside facilitators. And I will share with them how I'm struggling with mm -hmm. how I'm scared of 
some of like giving them feedback in the homework. I will be transparent with them about my struggles and how I'm trying to grow. You know, I'm scared about people getting mad at me and they laugh at me and, and, you know, they're like, Oh, come on. You know, like, <laughs> but the more I can be human about my own struggles and how I am doing my work inside as they're doing their work, there is no separation. There is less separation. I, I am a facilitator. I do have a role there, but that invites their vulnerability too, you know, and I don't know how you can do this work without, without vulnerability is the sauce or the secret, the, the, the enzyme I feel, which, which allows things to break down, but not break down like, like a jackhammer, mm. but digest, you know, and I believe as leaders, you know, leading with our vulnerability is a potent contribution. And I think that you can't have authenticity without vulnerability. I think whatever the language, cousins, sisters, twins, they inform each other. Yeah. And again, that's the place where like we trust each other. We find safety, right? Like, especially when the person who's leading the space is vulnerable, it opens up this huge space, which if I were to show up and act like I've got it together, you know, I'm, I'm a good facilitator. I know what I'm doing. I'm competent because I'm trying to get them to trust me, to believe in me. That's my story, right? I need to be appear competent and like all knowing the, again, this male role belief system in order for them to respect me. Otherwise these men are not. And I have to keep challenging the belief in myself and show up and tell them the truth about how I'm struggling too. And that actually creates a different space altogether. It changes the space, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I'm fully with you. And I think that's what we talk about when we cultivate brave spaces. It's about showing up with that vulnerability, showing up with that authenticity. And that is what creates potentially a sense of safety and trust. Yes. And we all feel that. And then, um, and it's that space that's going to support what emerges in our time together. And that will affect the conversations, will affect the sharings and and I'm not doing it in a way that says, hey, I need you all to take care of me. That's, it's, mm -hmm. I have enough capacity to hold myself. And when I'm sharing, I process stuff. So like when I say, hey, you know what? I, I'm struggling with this piece or I'm struggling with that piece and I'm scared I'm gonna mess this up. That actually is the teaching too. It's not separate from the, the what we're teaching, which is in these groups of mostly men, how do we uh, step into our vulnerability? Because we've all been hurt by the stupid belief system that we've got to be all-knowing, tough, have only certain feelings, avoid other feelings. We've got to appear a certain way. And that's gotten us all into so much trouble. And it's hurt us. It's hurting other people in our lives. It's hurting women too and, you know, other identities. And so we've got to break this belief system by saying, no, we're... We are more than this stupid facade we think we have to put up. Mm. It's helped us survive. I shouldn't call it stupid, but it's painful to be in just that. You know? And then that's the path to the heart. Now the heart has a space. The mm. tender parts of the heart have a space because there's vulnerability in the room. Those tender parts can start emerging maybe a little bit here and there. Right? <laughs>
For anyone on the call or anyone listening that doesn't know, GRIP is a program and it stands for Guiding Rage into Power. And will you just speak to us? You can even be brief about it, but what what is GRIP, uh, what is GRIP and what um, what purpose does it serve? Sure. Um, so GRIP, Guiding Rage into Power, is um, it's a year-long program and we go from... We have about 30 to 35 students in it for a whole year. And um, it's a comprehensive accountability and healing program. So what we're doing in this program, there's a whole arc, right? So we're supporting our students in uh, becoming aware of different forms of violence, uh, learning to stop their violence, um, which has to do with being aware of our reactivity, catching our reactivity before we escalate into violence. So that's the foundation of that is mindfulness, but it's not mindfulness as in sitting and meditating, but it's more about on your feet. Can you sense what's happening? You know, what are your sensations right now? What's happening in your belly? What's happening in the rest of your body? Is some part of you tightening up as you have your conversation? So learning to sense and to be present so you can catch it before you're in a full, you know, amygdala hijack and you're off to the races and then you cannot stop it. So there's that piece, the mindfulness piece. The other piece is also about uh, emotional intelligence, which is, okay, I've, you know, I'm having some feelings. What am I feeling? You know, what are my feelings? Rather than, oh, I feel good or I feel bad or I'm mad. No. Um, it's what am I feeling? You know, am I hurt? Am I sad? Am I feeling some shame? You know, am I feeling vulnerable? Am I scared? You know, like... To discover this whole world again now this goes into my nvc life you know this is what i did you know uh caitlin um grip stands for guiding rage into power and maybe i should hold off on answering questions but um but helping um so yeah emotional intelligence is another pillar and a foundation so these men are learning how to sense oh, i'm feeling something learn to identify it and say they're feeling angry to have the intelligence, emotional intelligence to go, oh, what's under the anger? Oh, I'm scared. Or I feel humiliated, you know. Um, and to work with your feelings and to be able to process their grief, their shame, because all these feelings will keep us in our prisons, the inner inside prisons. And it's not just, I believe, for people who are incarcerated, it's for all of us. Our shame keeps us locked in prison. Our grief keeps us, keeps the aliveness our grief is needed. We need to acknowledge it. How do we process it? You know, so then the reactivity piece. Uh, and then the last piece of this is about um, meeting surrogate victims who come in and understanding the impact through that dialogue to their own, having empathy for their own victims. So it's a really powerful, intense program. And, um, and it's amazing what these guys do with it. And they practice it. They do this work inside prison. So the reactivity work is really hard. You know, um, somebody does something while I'm driving and, you know, right away I'm gone. And, and, but to do this work, to, to track my reactivity and to hold myself before I lash out, you know, in the prison environment with those really horrible, you know, circumstances, those guys are doing the advanced work, I feel. And I tell them that all the time, you know. You guys are incredible um, how you take these tools and you live it in such an intense environment where mm -hmm. everything is against you. 
so yeah, that is a little synopsis of what the program is. There's a lot more, but that's a quick summary. Thank you. And reflecting back, I'm really hearing that it's an opportunity for people to understand and investigate their internal landscape. Yeah. And learning also the causes of their violence. You know, Mm -hmm. any of them were harmed, you know, as kids. And many of them grew up in, you know, social economic conditions where they didn't go to retreats. They didn't have workshops. They didn't have mindfulness. You know, they had they lived in food deserts and so on. And um, and they had incredibly difficult things like one of my one of the people, one of my students, actually one of the inside facilities said as a seven year old, he was sleeping with a knife to protect himself and his younger brother, you know. Um, and so the stories are really, really painful. And so we look at how were they harmed, you know, and and then also look at they are what harm they caused and also the shift from yeah you did something really really horrible right but you are a human being and to shift it out from the shame which keeps them stuck in that place to remorse which is about taking accountability for their actions but you know finding the authentic self in the process thank you when you yeah tell me would it be okay if you just took a breath together? Yeah, I would love that. <sighs> so when you go inside with this toolbox and this foundation, we titled this conversation Emotional Resilience. Can you talk about some of your experiences inside and how this foundation supports you in holding these conversations or doing this work? Mm. I mean, a lot of the work I do is listening, right? So it's about listening to their stories, listening to what happened and, uh, and like the Carl Rogers quote, you know, seeing their humanity, right? Um, just being there. And they're sharing stories from the childhood. They're sharing stories that people may never have really listened to or empathized with and connected with how they were hurt, you know? And so all this NVC practice and everything, it's like just really listening for the pain, listening for what needs, what really needs to be mirrored back and how do I be in my own humanity and see their humanity? You know, that's the bottom line, really. And in that, something starts happening. You know, and we do a little bit of, at a time. We unpack their the wounding that they went through. And a lot of it is the listening piece. Can I really listen? And then again, the roots piece, you know, about listening for my own feelings. So. I'm also sensitive to listening to other people's feelings. What are they feeling as they share the story? You know, and how do I support those feelings to flow, to move? Because many things have been held for a long time. And um, and in the field of listening, things will move, you know? And we all know this, right? When someone's really there and listening, 
it just opens and moves. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. So the emotional resilience piece really is about, uh, to me, I think of emotional resilience as, you know, we get these shocks and stresses, and then how do we recover from it? And if we haven't really told the stories and been heard and had a chance to process the feelings that are there, and when we can do that, that's okay. Now you can recover, right? So for me, NVC is a tool which allows me to, and the self-compassion practices of Buddhism, incredibly valuable for um, giving myself the compassion I need often to keep going, right? When things happen and the intelligence to process my feelings and support others also in the process. In the process. I mean, I've got stories I can tell like, um, like working with somebody processing their grief. You know, I, I wrote an article I, you, I sent you and um, we're sitting in a circle and we were supporting each of the men in the circle had, there were six of us and each of them had written a letter of a grief letter to somebody in their life that was important to them who had passed away. And um, this first gentleman offered to read, you know, as we are sitting in the circle and um, and grief is really big in prison. As Susan Shannon says, you know, like there's so much loss in prison. You know, there's loss of their freedom, loss of like not seeing their loved ones, loss of life, loss of health, missing birthdays, graduations. There's so much, you know. And so as soon as he started reading, like the grief just spread in the whole, all the whole group, you know, it's just like this heavy weight on everyone and all these big men sitting there. You know, they pretty soon started slouching, all looking down at the ground, you know, so you could see the heavy shoulders. And and so I did basically what I did just now, which is to take a moment to breathe together, you know, because um, because the speaker is transmitting so much grief and everyone's grief is now rising to the surface, right? So we're in a pool of grief. And so to breathe together to digest a little bit of what he'd shared. And then I could see the guys lighting up a little bit with a little bit of breath. And our breath is a really good indicator of where, how much capacity we have for more, right? So when people stop breathing, it's like, okay, we need to do something to, let's get the breath going again. That means we have capacity. I'll take a breath now. <laughs> Yeah, as you know, what I'm noticing is like sort of the sacredness, even as I'm telling you about it, like just the sacredness of what that was is coming up for me, you know, and um and and this, yeah. And so as this gentleman was reading, you know, what I heard was his mother's love for him, you know, and I heard the grief. But I also heard how his mother loved him unconditionally and was never saw him as a criminal or a monster, even though he was getting into all sorts of trouble, you know. And so for me, and this is a piece on mourning in NVC, what we call mourning, which is when we can, we always connect our feelings to our own needs. But mourning is when we can take grief and look inside the grief to see what was precious that is being mourned. You know, and as he was telling a story, it was like, wow, what I heard was, it's kind of like you get into the ocean of grief, which, you know, which is, 
which can be like all encompassing and like there's nowhere to go. Great, we're in this grief now. What? But if you can look for what is precious in that ocean, it's like these pearls. They're there. They're shining. You know, and you feel into that ocean. And you find that. And I asked him, like, you know, is there love here in this grief? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, feel that. You know, it's like your mother's unconditional love. It's shining in there, in that darkness, right? So, yeah. And then the grief doesn't go away, right? But it gets, it changes the quality of grief because now the the beauty and the preciousness of what was lost um, starts emerging. And so I just want to check in with you. How are you doing? I see a tenderness in your face. It's so incredibly beautiful. And I think every, ooh. Um, every time we come together as a community, I really fall in love with this work all over again. And how important it is for us to show up for each other in community and how important it is for us to show up for our friends and our community inside. And all of the different ways we can show up. And the joy that's there too. Yeah. Yes. And the beauty, the preciousness. So this is the preciousness you're feeling right now. How beautiful this is. And it's so tender. Yeah. And what I'm sensing, so what I'm doing now is the NVC practice. I'm trying to connect with your need, feelings, right? And needs. So just to be transparent and and please stop me whenever it feels right for you. And like the tenderness and the love that I'm sensing you're feeling, the heart. And what I'm sensing of you, about you is like, how what a big heart and how much the caring for this community, caring for the people you serve matters to you. And caring for the world, that your heart longs to care for this world. And especially the people, when we talk about the continuum of harm of these young, precious people who did not have control over their outside circumstances were harmed. And that leads to them harming others. And then they are further harmed by being isolated from community when belonging is an essential piece of their humanity. And we go and we visit them and we drive however many hours to get to the prison because that is also part of the system of isolating. And just um, how important it is for us to show up. Yeah. What I'm hearing is how much, how painful it is for you to see how these beings who were harmed are now being harmed over and over again by the system, where what they really need is connection. And the humanity deeply touches you. And that it's painful that the humanity is not being seen and and acknowledged. 
and then I think, you know, moving on from me, I think we also have the paradox of our work of, you know, in prison yoga project in our um, classes, we don't ask people what their crime was, but oftentimes people will, will tell you their, your participants will, will tell you and holding the paradox of the work that we do, holding that humanity and holding that violence of the stories that you hear. And even the disconnect sometimes of of who you see versus the harm that they caused. Yeah, I know. There's so much to hold here. Yes. I'm right there with you. That's exactly the terrain I'm into where I'm listening to these stories and going, I can't believe you did that, you know, and and you're just such a beautiful human being, you know, and so the one thing in my work, though, in GRIP, which when they tell us the stories, we there's a particular way GRIP unpacks what happened, what they did. And it's, there's there's often a lot of emotions there in these places and situations and then belief systems and um and that's not who they are now in um in our classes you know at least in grip they're often coming in you know with like 15 20 years and they've had they've reflected they've done some work and they've had time and um and so yeah they're really and yeah, holding the paradox in our own minds because it's like, wait a minute, you know, so that's a lot to hold. It's not easy. And and to really acknowledge both, not to, because that's something I've done too, is like, oh, the humanity piece, all this I'm not even going to look at because the humanity piece, but that's also part of my own growth and learning is how to hold both and be like, yeah. And then also the move from the person to the action. and from shame to remorse where we are not the worst thing we've done in our life, you know, and how do we support the people who are ready to, to have true remorse, the accountability where they are actually having empathy for their victims and taking responsibility for what they did, you know, and then they come through the other side and it's really powerful. And it's like, there's a human being who's taking ownership for what they did and, and then there's this amazing trust, I feel. This person has really done their work, you know. Um, and when they go to the parole board and these other places, that's what the commissioners are looking for. Have you really gotten into what you did? Can we trust you not to do what you did before? Have you really, really taken it in? Do you have empathy for your victims? Have you taken responsibility for what you did, you know? And so. Yeah, I said a lot of words. I'm curious where we are, Blair. <laughs> I'm right there with you. All right. I I think we'll shift to questions here soon, but I would also love to hear the story of the first time that you went into a prison. Oh. Yeah, so I um I was invited to come and check out a grip class, you know, in case I was interested, you know. Becoming joining the program, and 
I went in with Susan Shannon, um, who was the the Buddhist chaplain on death row at San Quentin. And so I walk in with Susan, and I've been to a prison before, and I was like, what is this thing? <laughs> um, then we walked down through the sally port into the yard, and, and I was terrified. Because I was like, holy shit, all the Netflix images of people getting stabbed and all these things, you know, like, but the guys are playing tennis and they were doing their own thing. And they were probably like, you know, and they all love Susan. Everyone loves Susan inside, you know, and I was like, oh, shit, I'm so scared. Meanwhile, Susan's like, all happy. This is a happy place. And and I'm, I was terrified. And I try, again, I was trying to act cool. I was like, oh, wow. you know, anyway, we ended up sitting in this little room with about 35 students and. And I was even more scared and I was all tight and and I was seeing scary people. I was seeing criminals and like monsters. And in NVC, we call this the enemy image when you detach from the humanity of someone else. And so anyway, I was really triggered. And um, during the class, they had students read their stories of tracking from childhood, how they came into prison, their path. And there's a particular process they go through. And so... This one gentleman shared his story of being woken up as a child in Vietnam in the middle of the night by his parents, put on a on a boat, and they escaped, went to a refugee camp somewhere, and then after a few months made their way to the U.S. And then um, he ended up in school here. He was really lost. He didn't speak the language. He was picked on in school, bullied, and all these things. He couldn't talk to his family about it. They were also kind of lost. Then he found his way to a gang. Finally, he had respect. He had belonging. He had like safety. And then the gang life led him to his crime. And, you know, he was inside. And as I was listening to a story, it just broke my heart open. I was like, oh, my God, there's the human being who this is what happened to this human being, you know, and like there is that quote. I forget if it is Ramdas or who said it, like when we know the secret story of our enemies, you know, something like that, they it's hard. You're like, wow, you have a story, you have a human story of behind where you are right now. And so that cut through my enemy image and I just felt my heart open and break, you know, in that moment sitting there. So anyway, I was doing my best to keep my tears from flowing because I was just feeling all these feelings coming up. And another gentleman shared a story. At the end of the group, Susan said, you know, uh, at the end of two hours, Susan said, okay, as a guest, do you have anything you want to share? I started to say thank you, but I was just like, I was I was just going to break down and cry, you know, and I was like, oh, I can't do that in front of these big men. <laughs> but those guys were so, they were amazing. They were like, it's all right. They were so present. They were right there. And they were like, it's all right. You can let it go. You know, you know, they were like encouraging me to let the tears come. <laughs> and anyway, I got some words out and thanked them. And one of the guys said, you know, when you as an outsider come in here and you hear our stories. And it touches you so deeply, it means we still matter. Yeah, exactly, right? It's like, it was like, um, and I told him, I thought I came in here to teach you all things. And like, I know so much, but I, I'm realizing I need to do this work. In that moment, Susan turns around to the group and says, what do you think, guys? Should we have him back? <laughs> and the guys are like, yeah, yeah, yeah let's have him back. <laughs> And that is it. I I was brought in right away. You know, I was like, I was like in this really, and it's just been, and so for me from that moment on, it's been about that. Like if my heart can be here with these people who've 
then something happens. And what that gentleman said that day is exactly right. If you come in here and you're deep, you touch, you're touched by what our stories and you care. And it's not like I came in there like caring, but it broke me. It broke through me, you know. So, so I feel like that's my job really is, you know, along with teaching content and emotional intelligence and mindfulness, like we talked about. It's really to be there as a human being that's uh, receiving their humanity, you know, and my own too. Um, that's a work in progress. And thank you so much for sharing your story because I think that's the first barrier maybe that people feel is being scared to go inside and understandable, right? All of the portrayals of what prison is and all of the assumptions that we have and harm and it is intimidating and it's purposely intimidating and correctional officers and uniforms and guns and locks and all of these things. And then we have our own preconceptions. Like I remember when I came to this work, I was like, okay, the people I'm going to serve, it's going to be youth, women, and men, maybe men. And the opportunity that I had was to go inside and go into a men's prison. And the love and the healing, more than I could express even on this webinar, right? But I think maybe that's people's assumptions or worries when going inside. And so I just really appreciate you speaking to your first experience. Yeah. And I think it requires going through our own filters, right? I feel like I had grace that loved me to, that broke me open. And we all come in with our conditioning and fears like, you know, for me and the stories, right? Like, so I've always like when I used to sit in those NVC circles in the early 2000s and we'd be talking about our feelings, you know, it was mostly I was sitting with women who were doing this work. And I used to feel like, what's wrong with me? Why am I sitting in these circles talking like about my feelings? I should be watching football. I should be doing male man things. And it's only and so I used to always feel like deficient as a man because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm too touchy feely. You know, I'm not a real man. I used to carry that around. Only after I started going inside and sitting with these big guys it's they're as big as they come you know <laughs> and realizing oh shit they need touchy feely guys like me and it's actually one of my inside facilitators is a big guy you know he's he he turned to me in a, one of our team meetings and he said you know i realize i depend on you to process feelings in the room and i was knocked off almost knocked off my chair i was like what me really and i'm sitting here thinking i don't have much value because i'm not you know like the big presentation and i was like and so the 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 teaching the learning you know all the stories we have of that get in our way right that and and so this is my own healing that's happening as i'm doing this work and and i'm being transformed as i'm being invited in to do this work by the people who trust me before I trust myself fully, you know? So I'm just grateful. I'm super grateful to the, the director of this Buddhist center invited me to teach NVC there, which then led me to getting invited to the visit in San Quentin, which then leads me to where I am right now. People like Susan who were like, yeah, you just come and join us. You know, these people see right into you and they're like, yeah, you just, we want to. So I feel very grateful and blessed to be in this and to meet people like you, you know, that we are, like I was telling you, you know, I feel like I'm in a friend, you know, friend community here. I haven't been inside Prison Yoga Project, but we are doing the same work. 
our hearts are I feel the heart here, you know, and we're family. <laughs> so, yeah. There are so many hidden gifts when we show up for this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think our hearts are calling us to this work. That's why we're here. And everything that's in the way comes gets pushed to the surface. You know, but our hearts are longing to do this work. That's why we're here. Otherwise, we would be. There's so many other things to be doing. Why, like you said, you know, why go into these really difficult uh, realms, these places where there's so much inhumanity, and and do this work? It's because there's something in us that's pulling us. There's a longing to serve something. Yeah, and that you know, I've done almost ninety webinars and interviews, and got to have gotten to speak to so many people. And it's so interesting. There is, I hear a seed in every story that was planted. Someone read an article about offering yoga in prison and something wakes up inside of them. It's just a moment. And then from there on, it's like, how do I get there? What's the path? And I I just love hearing that story over and over again of how something just opens up inside of you and say, this is it. This is my call. Yeah. And, you know, this thing, the something opens up. And to me in NVC, we call that the longing, the need. Mm. You, you touch into something alive and essential in you that you feel. And now it's how do we realize that in action? So there's the longing. And now what form does it take? So that's where I feel we are family. We, are, we all have the same longing here. You may be doing yoga. I may be doing something else. But our longing is the same. Mm. That's beautiful. And again, hallelujah. <laughs> Just so much gratitude. I I feel excited about this question as well. And maybe we can shift there to, to have our community start to ask questions, you know, and just as a pitch, this is the benefit of joining us live is that you get to engage directly with our amazing guests. First question we have, do you have any suggestions for addressing the vulnerabilities, grief, and emotion that might arise for incarcerated individuals in a yoga and mindfulness class that may support them when they leave the class and return to a space in the facility? The women I share yoga with often share that they feel overwhelming emotions that arise after class and how there is a release, but it can be overwhelming and anxiety provoking. They're often facing these feelings without adequate support really great question yeah that's a really big one so what we do in grip is um we we so i'm going to speak from grip which is my actual experience rather than theorizing because you know i haven't done the yoga work so i can't really speak to how the emotions move when you're doing yoga in there you know so but in grip we'll go into like these exercises where we'll be like let's go into grief let's reflect on like the grief letter or the childhood moment of powerlessness. And so the way we integrate after going into that deep emotion and we bring them out, we process it, but the room is so tender and vulnerable, right? We actually use games to integrate. So play is a great way to integrate. So even if you could make five minutes at the end, do do an activity where the group is doing some play activity, 
it will regulate plays the most brilliant way to regulate deep emotion because people start looking at each other they start interacting and when we play so i have i did a laughter yoga training and what they what i learned was children um laugh because they play adults laugh because you know we get a joke it goes through the mental processing then it, then we go ah ha, ha, that is funny but children laugh because they play and so if you can do something that's playful at the end it's not to disrespect the emotion in the room but to integrate it and create it then the medicine of connection also helps we're laughing we're playing the silliness comes the emotion doesn't the emotion actually integrates there's other things i do too like uh, the tapping which you all probably do that really helps and i learned that in qigong just to go over the whole body and tap um because there's a certain way in which that focus on that what's inside that's tender something about the skin and going all around and then brushing so the qigong teacher i learned this from said oh we're going to break up everything that's stuck and you know you do this all up and down your body the back and the front the sides and then you start brush i don't know if you all already do this kind of stuff but either way keep teaching us okay yeah and then the next thing you do he what i learned from him was like you start brushing off what was broken and so you're brushing your whole body and something happens in that process so that's a very simple way to regulate and then there's like tons of strategies out there but the game if you can do a little bit of a game that's really helpful and i want to acknowledge too what the, what's being named which is there isn't support out there it is really hard to come into a space be really vulnerable and then go out into that horrible space you know so yeah i do feel like how hard it is and thank you for what you shared there's really so much in that question we're getting a couple more questions of really how to engage can you give us a couple examples of play um yeah i mean there's this game like um you know you have one chair less than the circle and um yeah one person in the middle and they say hey you know um one of the games you use is called where the wild wind blows for someone who's um someone who's wearing glasses and everyone who's wearing glasses gets up and has to find a new seat you know and so people become kids and they're just like we all just go back to our you know like suddenly we're like engaged in the game i remember we're playing this game and um like there was one guy who's, who pushed his chair back he didn't want to be part of the circle to play the game and as the game was happening and these guys are running around being silly like these big kids you know <laughs> I looked at his face and I could see his face went from just sitting looking sullen and started lighting up and he started laughing and that you know that child came out because play is like sadness and grief it's contagious you know uh and not just laughter but play and so the other one that I find I don't know you know what's possible but you pick somebody um each person picks somebody in the room without telling them one is the sun and the other is the moon and your goal is to keep your sun your moon between you and the sun so what starts happening is and nobody knows who their sun and who's using them right what starts happening is people all start moving around because they don't want to be directly exposed to their sun they're constantly moving to keep their moon in between you know so the whole room is moving and everyone's like going <laughs> right there you know it's just like chaos and you know but it depends what's possible in that space right so 
And yeah, and thank you for honoring and speaking to that as well, because definitely every space, every facility is different. But I'm I'm hearing that it uh, it integrates and almost disrupts some of the heaviness and integrates it into play and coming back and it rounds out the time that you have together. Exactly. It rounds it. What I found, you know, I've been curious about it. Is it disrupting and like breaking it? Actually, it's integrating it. And so the healing and the tenderness that's there actually gets sort of, um, I don't know, this round kind of, um, and that's resilience again, you know, play like God and, um, and we're not forcing anyone to do anything, but even if you're watching, you know, the air in the room changes and, and now actually we have more capacity. We have more breath for more teaching. And that's how we can go a whole days by, um, yeah, but it, it doesn't feel like it's breaking into it. That wouldn't feel good because that would not be very, that would not feel good. Yeah. I see that people are quite engaged with this play and people are maybe looking for additional resources. Where would you point people for maybe like uh, icebreaker is kind of the feeling that I'm thinking, but like where can people find more information about integrating play into class? That's a good question. Um, I've been constantly looking to, you know, Grip has their tools and I want to be careful about not you know, is it okay to share all those things? And I don't want to get in trouble because I love grip. <laughs> so I'm doing a little dance inside myself. Um, but be creative, right? Find the things you've got it. Look out there. We got, you know, use AI to come up with play in prison. <laughs> um, you can, yeah. So I think one of the things that I, I kind of do is like, I sometimes will have people clap their hands. You know, we I, especially when the energy is down, I'll say, let's all do a clap. We all clap, the whole room claps mm. once. And that just wakes everyone up. And I'll say, let's clap two times. Okay. And then this other guy got creative. He's like, okay, let's clap our tribe. We have tribes and we have a number. So it was like seven, five, six. He says, all right, let's do seven, five, six. So the whole room, everyone's paying attention. We do seven claps, then we do five claps, then you do six claps. And everyone is looking around, and that's a good thing. When we are looking around, we're making eye contact, and we are like syncing up our movement with each other. Right? That's a polyvagal thing, I think. And so this is a brilliant way. The other one I've done is um, stomping. Like, um, or you could do this, right? If you don't have chairs, if you're sitting in chairs in a circle, you could all like stomp your feet, you know, so the whole room sounds like a herd of elephants. Then I have them stop. And that's good. They're getting the lower body engaged. Then I say, let's do a wave with stomping. So I started and I sent it to the right. So the stomping is going on. I'm like, come on, guys, you can put some more energy into it. And guys are starting to laugh and it comes around. And then I send it the other way. And I'm like, no, that's not good enough. You can, you, can, you know, so you start to work the crowd, you know. And, and then this other student, what he did was he said, okay, let's do clapping also and stomping, you know, or, you know, or you could do this in a circle if you're not sitting, you know, and, and like, Everyone is doing this together and you can feel like the vibration in the room and then send it out in a wave or get creative, you know, and uh, yeah. Uh, these are great. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. <laughs> I just dropped the grip 
uh, website if you're interested in reading more about GRIP. And if this is something that you're called to do, they do trainings and you can be a facilitator. I'm not sure exactly what GRIP looks like bringing it outside of California, but I feel like there is always opportunity for anything. Um, I love Joe. She's over here now drumming on her chest. It feels good. Even when I was watching you do it, I was like, oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah. The other day, I, I do I do a conscious movement practice I've been doing for 10 years, you know, like with music. It's not ecstatic dance. It's different five rhythms. And like I had this group, they were already graduates of the year-long program. And we were in a circle and doing some sort of process. And Adam stand up and I said, all right, I want us to... And I'd never tried this. This was a new edge for me. I was like, I want us to do a movement and a sound together. And I started, I said, ha, you know, and I stepped back and I was like, is anyone going to do it? Are they going to just like, (laughs) but guys started doing it. And again, that's play. That's like, we are, but there was enough safety in the room. I wouldn't do that. I'm very careful and sensitive to what's, what I think is available or accessible a little bit more. I don't want to like, just, I wouldn't use that in most spaces. Right. So I think trust your gut and um, yeah. Thank you. We do have a couple more questions, so we'll continue. My son is in a New York prison and laughed when I told him I was doing the PYP training. He states that there would be no interest in the setting um, for such a program. What would you say to him? Yeah, I mean, I would just listen and acknowledge that's his experience. And um, that may be true for where he is and what he's available for, you know, Um, and just respect that, Mm. you know. And I would not try to change someone's mindset about it and because everyone's in a different place in their journey. And. And there are people I've been in groups with who will say, you know, like, if you saw me. Like five years ago, I was not ready to any of these groups. In fact, one of the master facilitators I work with in GRIP, you know, Bernard, he often says, oh, he used to come high to this classes when he was incarcerated. You know, he was formerly incarcerated. And, but Jock, the founder, believed in him and let him come. And and that now he's this amazing facilitator out there. So maybe it's not time for them, you know, like... Um, to each their own time, you know. That's beautiful. Thank you for that acknowledgement. We didn't get to talk too much about your training with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock. Some people are interested in hearing about this meditation teacher training. And I would just love to hear anything about your experiences and maybe just a couple pinpoints of how it informed your work of going inside. Yeah, I, I wanted, like, I'd already started teaching because this Buddhist, the director of a Buddhist center in Sacramento invited me to teach and I started teaching and kept going on. And and suddenly I was like, I'm teaching, but nobody like certified me to teach. Mm. So even though that was NVC, I was like, oh, look, there's this mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. And I felt like going through that would give me some sort of internal permission, which others already giving me externally, but it was for my own internal process. And I feel like that's what I got. But as I went through it, I realized the act of teaching had already taught. I'd had to deal with all these issues which they were teaching about. Uh, But you have to, yeah. So it was really helpful. And for me, the NVC and the mindfulness pieces are very intertwined. It's really about 
how do I create a non-judgmental space for my own experience and other people's experience, right? And for what I'm feeling, yeah, just like, can I be with what's here right now? And then that fundamental teaching about like, because all these practices, I believe, here comes the garbage truck. We had a garbage truck right at the beginning when I was doing the grounding meditation. How perfect. How blessed are we to have the garbage truck? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, gosh, if, yeah. So the, the key thing from uh, mindfulness and Buddhism that I, informs me is like what I learned about the two wings of the bird in Buddhism. They talk about you need two wings for your practice to fly. Um one is wisdom and the other is compassion. So I adopt that to say in my life, I need the wing of awareness, which is not quite what the Buddhists are saying. But the more we do these practices, the more we get in touch with stuff. And often the stuff, when it's really good work, what we're getting in touch with is like, oh, shit. You know, sometimes you get the ahas and like, oh, wow. But often it's like, oh, shit, I'm doing this, Fuck, you know, this and Damn, I don't want to see this in myself. That means your practice is working. Yeah. And that to me is the wing of awareness. And what you need then is the wing of compassion to hold the oh shit, uh, to hold what's difficult to see in ourselves. And if you don't have both, you know, I don't know. So for me, that informs everything I do in prison, outside. It feels like it's just this all the time. I'm basically doing this all the time. <laughs> it's a, I I had a visualization. So when you don't have compassion, yeah, when you just have the awareness, it mm -hmm. actually starts to spin the bird because exactly. it's too heavy and it just keeps spinning, and that's yeah. that's anxiety. Exactly, it's painful and it's like too much of this seeing and too much painful stuff i haven't processed it enough i need compassion to digest to integrate to meet it to hold it to love it and nurture it before i can take on any more but if all i have is awareness and i'm just seeing all this difficult stuff it's too much mm -hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna burn up and go nowhere so that it's so important to have both yeah this has been one of my favorite webinars that we've uh, ever done I'm so, yeah, yeah, so much to celebrate, so much to celebrate. Uh, we have one more question. Um, thanks, Ed Kern. He is uh, an incredible, and I don't want to necessarily um, mispronounce his role, but I know that he does a lot of work in the South, um, works directly uh, with mental health. Um, the question is, the work that you do is inspiring. I am interested in how you and other group facilitators interact with prison leadership and operations and security staff. Have you found advocates among the staff? Great question. Thank you. Yeah, there, like there was like we needed. Um, I was at CTF in Soledad, um, South of Salinas, and we needed like copies made. And our inside team said, hey, go to the sergeant. He's awesome. He helps out. And sure enough, I, I was I'm a little intimidated to talk to them. and. He was super helpful and he supports programs. So there are people and um, at my level as a facilitator, you know, actually just to back up, there's this uh, researcher, Kaya Stern, and I can send you links later if you want to add it to the video, who's written this beautiful paper about how 
the correction staff are harmed by the system. And so I think it's really helpful to read that and to have empathy and compassion for them because otherwise it's easy for me. I have done this. I go in there and I'm like, you guys are the bad guys. And it's like, no, these are human beings too that are in a system because it's not, this is a horrible, difficult place to work. So I try to have as much compassion and see their humanity too. Um, and and that is really, it's not easy because they're not always nice and friendly and warm and fuzzy, you know, especially since I'm coming in to support our, like Kaya Stern also wrote another article called Connection is Contraband, you know, like exactly what you were talking about, actually, which was how as um, volunteers, we're coming in, we're smuggling in this contraband of connection when everything about the institutions is about withdrawing connection from them. And so when we are so supportive of the incarcerated people and we're bringing in all this um, care, some of the correction staff can have this mentality of it's either our team or the other team. And this is actually stuff we word inside. And if you're so friendly with the team in blue, then the team in green, you're, you don't. And this is a culture and mindset. But, you know, it's like they're doing what they need to do to belong to that mindset and the culture that's bigger than them. So trying to have compassion for them is what feels best for me. And um, yeah, that's what comes to mind. And I don't work higher levels like wardens and all those people. There's other people fortunately doing it, but I try to be respectful and friendly with the CEOs as best I can, you know, they're doing the job. Definitely a perspective that we take at PYP too is the understanding that this system harms everyone it touches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it dehumanizes them too, and they've got to do all these things. It's just horrible. I mean, and the trauma rates in, in that population are really bad too. So, yeah. And then I have a response to that. Yes, uh, quoting you, how correctional staff is harmed by the system. Yes, moral injury is a constant stress for those who strive to make a difference. Yeah, exactly. We are sadly at time, but I want to give you the mic if there's anything that hasn't been spoken to today or any drops of wisdom or insight that you want to leave us with just give it to you um no i'm just really grateful and uh just seeing some of these messages and i feel the i feel the energy in the space we're all like i said heart family and um yeah i'm just grateful to be in a space where i feel our shared longing to be in service and for this particular group of people and just so grateful for you Blair and your heart which comes just right there <laughs> so yeah no, I'm just grateful and thank you thank you thank you I can say the same for us for me on this call and for PYP as well I really felt just speaking to it now because it wants to come forward, I could feel all of the people that we are connected with inside all of our participants and community and, and friends, and I could really feel them here with us. So just speaking to um, the people of why, why we do this work, our, our shared heart, our shared connection. Thank you. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we will absolutely have to have you back to continue this conversation. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>